When you look at those kids, we don't want to be a part of this story any longer. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com, trying to make sense of it all. Thank you for joining me for this curious adventure that we call the Bradcast. Um, Let's see, coming up... Uh, oh, we're going to have a, uh, a right-winger, so to speak, joining us in a little bit from the Cato Institute to talk about immigration. That's coming up shortly. Breaking just before airtime here, we've got this. Hope Hicks, the White House communications director and one of President Trump's longest-serving advisors, said on Wednesday that she plans to leave the White House in the coming weeks. That's right. Hope Hicks is resigning. She is uh, 29 years old. She's a former model who joined Trump's 2016 presidential campaign without any experience whatsoever in politics and became one of the uh, known as one of the few aides who understood his personality and style and could challenge the president to change his views, according to Maggie Haberman over at The New York Times. Hicks's uh, resignation comes a day after she testified for eight hours before the House Intelligence Committee telling the panel that in her job she had occasionally been required to tell white lies but had never lied about anything connected to the investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 election. So she admitted to telling white lies but then said, but not here, not on this part. Unless when she said that, that that was one of the white lies. Multiple White House aides said that Hicks's departure was unrelated to her appearance before the committee. So, you know, if the Just White House says so, they said that uh, she had told a small group of people in the days before the session that she had planned to leave her job. So I suspect this is uh, <clears throat> breaking and uh, everyone is now uh, just coming in with their stories about it as we go to air. I suspect this is one of those stories that has a lot more to it. 
You think? Than what we are just getting uh, right now. Yeah. Uh, in any event, uh, she says uh, she is uh, she is ex- expressing her gratitude to the president. He responded with his own statement in kind, according to the Times, uh, saying that hope is outstanding and has done great work for the last three years. Trump said when she approached me about pursuing other opportunities, I totally understood. I'm sure we will work together in the future. So, again, uh, probably more to that story that will uh, be revealed in the coming hours and days and weeks, I suspect. But we will see. That just broke. In the meantime, yesterday was another election day. That's right. Another special elections day. And uh, that means, as it has for the past uh, many special elections day uh, days, that means good news for Democrats again, it appears. In 2016, Donald Trump won the New Hampshire House District in Belknap County, District 3, by 13 points. But on Tuesday, the Democratic candidate in the special election to fill the seat left vacant by the death of a Republican state uh, uh, rep last year, The Democrat won it on Tuesday by eight points, flipping yet another state legislative district from red to blue. This time it was a 21 point swing from the 2016 election to uh, the election day on Tuesday. uh, That made the 38th such state legislative seat to be uh, declared as flipped from Republican to Democratic since Trump's election. But that wasn't the only one on Tuesday night. Also, uh, Democrats flipped the uh, seat in Connecticut's House District 120, a district which Republicans had controlled for 40 years. That seat was vacated when the former Republican state rep there resigned to become the mayor of Stratford. So that makes 39 seats that Democrats have flipped from red to blue since Donald Trump took office. Now, to be fair, during that same period, Republicans flipped a few seats from Democratic to Republicans. I believe the number is either three or four state legislative seats have flipped from blue to red. So there's that. But Democrats uh, have now also flipped six seats this year alone in just the first two months of this year. They also picked up seats in deep red Wisconsin, Kentucky, Missouri, and, uh, and a district in Florida, in addition to New Hampshire and Connecticut on Tuesday night. That has all happened just this year alone. And I'm wondering if Republicans are yet getting tired of all that winning. Another uh, race on Tuesday... Uh, Another race on Tuesday night took place in Kentucky's State House District 89 to fill a seat vacated by a Republican who resigned due to health concerns. And while the Republican won that seat in Kentucky on Tuesday night, uh, it was a different story uh, last Tuesday, another special election in Kentucky uh, where there was an 85 point swing to the Democrats as that seat was flipped from Republican to Democrat. But last night, uh, the Republican won the seat uh, in a district that Trump had won in 2016 by 62 points. So not that surprising. Not that surprising. That this time the Republicans held on to that particular seat. But only by 33 points. Hmm. So uh, it was still a a big loss for, for the Democrats not to win that seat, but it was a nearly 30-point swing from Democratic to Republican in that district since uh, Trump's 2016 election. All seemingly very good signs for Democrats this year. We'll see. 
They are nothing if not talented at snatching defeat, defeat from, from the, the jaws, jaws of, of victory. victory. <laughs> yes. Uh, but we'll see. Also on yesterday's show, by the way, I mentioned the U.S. House primary race, uh, a special election for the U.S. House to replace Congressman Trent Franks. Uh, the Republican from the 8th Congressional District, a very Republican area of West Phoenix. And uh, those primaries were held on Tuesday night in which two Democrats and 11 Republicans were each vying for their party's nomination for the upcoming April 24 special election to replace Congressman Franks. He resigned last year. Uh, it, after, uh, among other things, after offering a staffer $5 million to carry his child as a surrogate. Uh, one of the leading candidates on the Republican side, who was endorsed by Franks and the Tea Party and the disgraced Sheriff Joe Arpaio and guys like Ted Cruz and Rick Santorum, one of the leading candidates for the Republican nomination was former state Senator Steve Montenegro. He's a married Christian, a so-called family values minister who it was revealed last week had been receiving topless photos from a former legislative aide via text message. Montenegro admitted that he became too close to the woman, but, uh, quote, never had inappropriate relationship with her or anyone else, he said, though he apparently asked her to send such photos next time by Snapchat rather than plain old text so they would disappear after they are received. Well, see, that's your family values at work. Right there. Yeah, let's keep them out of the public eye. And the woman in uh, question in this um uh, uh, this relationship, whatever it's called, uh, she sent him apparently multiple photos and they, quote, engaged. She says they engaged in sexual conversation about those pictures. But other than that, nothing inappropriate at all. In any event. So that guy, Montenegro, he was uh, one of the uh, lead uh, uh, candidates for this uh, Republican nomination to replace Congressman Franks. Uh, but in that case, the Republicans appeared to have dodged a bullet on Tuesday night. Montenegro was edged out by former state Senator Debbie Lesko. She will now become the new GOP favorite in this heavily Republican 8th congressional district outside of Phoenix, though she has uh, some campaign issues of her own that uh, campaign finance issues that may come up between now and the general election on April 24. We will see what happens. She will face off against Democrat Hiral Tipernini, a political uh, a political newcomer. So that's what happened on Tuesday night in the world of special elections. Uh, a judge who was taunted by Donald Trump during the presidential election campaign sided with the president on Tuesday on a challenge to building a border wall with Mexico, removing what might have been a major obstacle to the uh, signature campaign pledge of this president. U.S. District Judge Gonzalo Curiel was uh, he rejected arguments by the state of California and other advocacy groups that the administration had overreached by waiving laws requiring environmental and other reviews before construction on uh, on a section of the wall can begin. Plaintiffs in the lawsuit said that a 2005 law that gave the Homeland Security Secretary broad authority to waive the reviews had expired. That was their argument. 
Judge Curiel um, disagreed with the plaintiffs and said that the measure may still be used, that 2005 measure may still be used to waive a whole bunch of environmental rules in order to build Trump's wall. Yep. Sorry, kids. Sorry, kids. Sorry, animals. Sorry, uh, oh, yeah. environment. Sorry, everything else. Uh, Trump tweeted in response to the ruling, quote, big legal win today. But he did not mention his prior remarks about the judge for some reason. <clears throat> yeah. The uh, one of the uh, attorneys for one of the plaintiffs, uh, Brian Seggy, uh, the, the, for the uh, plaintiffs, the Center for Biological Diversity, uh, said that the ruling would allow Trump to shrug off crucial environmental laws that protect people and wildlife. The uh, Trump administration has completely overreached its authority, he said, in its rush to build this destructive, senseless wall. He said they're giving unprecedented sweeping power to an unelected agency chief to ignore dozens of laws and crash through hundreds of miles of spectacular borderlands. Seggy said this is unconstitutional, should not be allowed and uh, allowed to stand. And uh, the environmental uh, group plans to appeal the decision. They are part of a coalition of organizations that filed the lawsuit against the federal government. And one of the things that Curiel said in his ruling, I thought, was was quite telling. He said, quote, it is not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices. Exactly. Yeah. He quoted Chief Justice John Roberts on that, saying it's not up to us. It's not up to the courts. This might not be a good law, whatever. But that's what the people, the nation's elected leaders. That's what they decide. He said they can be thrown out of office if the people disagree with them. It's not our job to protect the people from the consequences of the political actions and political choices. Unless, of course, it's the wildly popular Voting Rights Act, which had been approved over and over again by the nation's elected leaders and which Roberts led the court in gutting back in 2013 when I guess he decided he did have the expertise and prerogative to make policy judgments. Sometimes a a rolling target with these guys, I guess. Uh, It really does depend on what is expedient for what they actually want. Sure does. Uh, This uh, judge, if you need a reminder, during the presidential campaign, Trump had attacked Curiel uh, because he is of Mexican ancestry, though he was born in Indiana. Uh, He called Curiel a hater. Uh, He made unfounded claims that he was unfair to Donald Trump when he ruled against the fraudulent Trump University. In subsequent interviews, Trump speculated that Curiel's uh, unfavorable ruling in that Trump University case was due to uh, Trump's rhetoric about the border wall. Uh, He did end up Trump ended up settling that lawsuit for twenty five million dollars, though he didn't admit wrongdoing. There is no evidence that Curiel uh, found against Donald Trump. Uh, in any uh, fashion due to his stance on the wall. And here it is. Uh, Curiel has uh, paved the way, so to speak, for that wall to uh, begin building, Uh, although I'm sure there will be further challenges along the way. Uh, In Congress, some House Republicans are working to help the White House to circumvent a series of environmental laws in pursuit of that border wall, uh, including uh, waiving the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, and so forth. Several bills before Congress will allow the Department of Homeland Security's 
Customs and Border Patrol to construct physical barriers and conduct uh, border patrols on federal or tribal land without regard to 36 different laws. Speaking of uh, rolling goals, rolling uh, 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 laws here that we just pick and choose which ones we like, I guess. Uh, All right. um, One more here before we get to our break. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders admitted on Tuesday that the Trump administration has no contingency plans whatsoever in place for recipients of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program after March 5. That is the deadline that Donald Trump gave Congress to come up with a uh, a permanent fix after Donald Trump broke the Obama-era program by lifting it. So that's next Monday, if I have my dates right. Uh, Next Monday, DACA protection, at least in theory, goes away. Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, said that uh, the president is encouraging Congress to get something done. She said it's really sad that Democrats are not willing to come to the table to get something done and actually fix problems and do their job. But the president is still hopeful and we're going to continue pushing forward. Ask whether the administration had a backup plan to keep DACA recipients protected past March 5. Sanders said we are still hopeful that something happens on this and Congress will actually do its job. So, yes, they have no backup uh, plans in place whatsoever. And again, March 5, this coming Monday, Hundreds of thousands of DACA recipients, dreamers, once protected from deportation, may no longer enjoy that protection, even though two different federal courts now have confirmed that those who once had DACA protections may file to uh, renew those protections with the federal government and that those protections must be respected. But uh, for now, anyway, uh, that will as that that'll those folks may be protected as the case works its way through the courts. Nonetheless, many were unable to renew their DACA status. Many more never had the protections in the first place. The court did not grant away for those uh, who have recently aged into the program to fill out new applica- applications for DACA. So if you had one before, you might be able to reapply. But if you never got one for any uh, of a number of reasons, you're not allowed to apply for a new one. So what happens on Monday and beyond at this point remains anybody's guess when it comes to DACA as a, a fix to that program that uh, Trump broke seems nowhere near a legislative solution at this point. Trump has rejected all of the various proposals that have been put forward uh, by uh, Democrats, even those that would fund his border wall. Yes, Democrats offered to give him money to fund his border wall. He turned down that plan as well because uh, Democrats would not join in Trump's call to uh, have new restrictions on legal immigration that Trump is now insisting must be added to any deal to protect those dreamers. All the while, no new DACA applicants applications will be accepted. People continue to lose their status. They continue to be detained and deported, which is what makes uh, Huckabee Sanders' announcement on Tuesday about the lack of contingency even more concerning. Meanwhile, over the weekend, at the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, Republicans themselves 
couldn't even agree on independently verifiable facts and data when it comes to immigration, much less uh, agree on a solution to all of this. Let's take a quick break and we will come back to speak with a conservative from the Cato Institute who tried to offer facts about immigration at, uh, at a CPAC panel, only to get heckled and shouted down by his uh, fellow Republicans there. Let's see if we at least can uh, try to agree on a few of those facts with David Beer right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We are just days away now from when the protection for children who came here unlawfully, some of them decades ago as immigrants with their parents, uh, when those protections are set to expire under, under Donald Trump's sort of arbitrary March 5 deadline, when those once protected from deportation by the Obama-era DACA or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program will expire. All efforts to pass legislation in Congress to protect those dreamer kids seems to have fallen away at the moment, even with the deadline uh, of March 5 quickly approaching, though two different federal courts have now said that while lawsuits work their way through the courts, previous DACA recipients will be allowed to renew their applications though that still leaves hundreds of thousands who could soon be detained and or deported by the Trump administration. For all of the discussion about immigration and border walls, protections for the DACA kids uh, since uh, Trump lifted their protections from deportation, as well as uh, Trump and now the Republican Party's new demands to curb legal immigration as well as illegal immigration in any deal to protect those dreamers. For all of that talk, there was only one panel that appears to have been dedicated to immigration issues at all at last weekend's Conservative Political Action Conference or annual CPAC gathering outside of Washington, D.C. Our friend Alice Olstein over at TPM reports that the one panel on immigration appeared to have gone quickly off the rails, she writes, with audience members drowning out panelists' presentation of, of data about the benefits, the benefits of immigration, with booze, laughter, and stories of, quote, obvious illegal immigrants defecating and fornicating in the woods. Okay, then. As David Beer, a policy analyst with the Libertarian Cato Institute, attempted to lay out research, hard data, supporting the cause of legal immigration in the U.S., citing crime rates lower than uh, they are among native-born Americans and their uh, significant contri contribution to our economy, uh, Beer's fellow panelists derided his statements as nutty and angry audience members shouted him down. 
when he noted that the U.S. proportionally takes in very few immigrants and refugees compared to other nations, a man interjected, you're a dreamer. And much of the crowd broke out in applause and jeers. Olstein writes that though this year's CPAC fell squarely amid a legal and political battle over the fate of nearly two million young immigrants known as Dreamers, the only panel dedicated to the topic was held in a small windowless room at 5 p.m. on Thursday after many of the conference attendees had already left for one of the uh, many boozy receptions. And though the panel was titled, You May Say You're a Dreamer, but you're not the only one, it focused very little on the Dreamer population itself. Instead, the event became a general airing of fears and grievances about both legal and illegal immigration, she writes. The panel's moderator, Christopher Malaghese, claimed without evidence that there was a ploy by Democrats to offer immigrants a path to citizenship in exchange for their votes. Congressman Michael Burgess, another one of the panelists, who faces a uh, primary from a Trumpian hard-right newcomer, uh, similarly accused Democrats of putting the economic interests of young immigrants over those of young American citizens. Whenever Beer of the Cato Institute cited research to counter incorrect claims from his p fellow panelists and the audience... When they claim, for example, that recent immigrants are disproportionately criminal, are an economic drain on government, or take several generations to learn English, beer was met with vocal hostility. But really, should any of that be a surprise at this point? Uh, here to discuss his independently verifiable data and whether he was surprised or not by his reception at CPAC is David Beer. He's an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Before joining Cato, a right-leaning libertarian think tank, Beer was director of immigration policy at the Niskanen Center and a senior policy advisor for Republican Congressman Raul Labrador, a member of... Uh, a member and current chairman of the House Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Immigration and Border Security. David Beer, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, since, you know, I suspect that you and I disagree on just about everything uh, politically, if, <laughs> if not on actual independently verifiable data that I want you to talk about uh, on this matter. Let me Let me first note, just by way of underscoring our likely disagreement on most things, that your opening statement at the CPAC panel, as you described it when uh, when writing about it, uh, was that, quote, conservatives should not act as liberals do on many issues. Liberals focus on mass shootings, for example, not on the numerous cases of defensive gun use. Many liberals also ignore the incredible wealth that capitalism has created, preferring to highlight those people in capitalist societies who have been relatively less successful. In other words, liberals tend to focus on the exceptions to the rule. Now, David, I completely disagree with the way you set up your <laughs> argument there, but I'm pointing it out not to debate those issues, but to underscore that we disagree on a lot politically, I suspect. But if we're ever going to come to a legislative consensus on anything in this country, we need to at least agree on facts and data, and never more so, I think, when it comes to uh, what has happened to the immigration debate in this country. So with that long preamble out of the way, what are the facts and the data that you tried, at least, to lay out at the CPAC uh, panel on this? And then we can discuss how it was received, etc. 
Yeah, so I, I talked about how conservative, some conservative outlets really like to focus on immigrant crime. and uh, But we know from the U.S. Census Bureau that immigrants, including illegal immigrants, are about half as likely to be incarcerated in the United States uh, for serious crimes than U.S.-born adults. And so uh, the, they're really focusing on the exceptions uh, to the rule. Uh, something else that I cited is the National Academy of Sciences 2016 report on the fiscal costs of immigration that found that the average recent immigrant to the United States will pay at least $92,000 more in taxes than they receive in benefits from the government over their lifetime. Um, on, you know, I talked about English language comprehension, uh, the current cohort of immigrants arriving in 2016, highest uh, English language comprehension of any cohort since we've had non-English speaking immigrants coming to this country. Uh, if you look at assimilation, you're talking about two-thirds of eligible immigrants are choosing to become citizens of this country. And even on their policy views, you know, we disagree, but part of assimilation is, you know, the differences between immigrants and, and, uh, and U.S.-born citizens should be closing. We should, you know, be, uh, you know, coming together, not growing further apart. And on that score, if you look at the general social survey, mm-hmm. uh, that finds that there's no statistically significant differences on any major policy issue between naturalized citizens mm-hmm. and U.S. born citizens on any major policy issue except for immigration, uh, which is, of course, a very important and uh, telling exception. Uh, they obviously are more in favor of immigration uh, than the U.S. born population is. Um, so even if your concern is, you know, they're going to make us more right leaning or left leaning, that doesn't appear to be the case either. Um, and so uh, those were just some of the facts and, and data that I was trying to put out there in my uh, brief presentation on this. And, and those are all sort of independently verifiable. We don't have to take David Beer's word on any of those things. It's, I don't believe it's uh, based on your own original research, but on you know a lot of uh, uh, data that is out there and available. Uh, another point, by the way, since you were uh, focusing on the uh, economic impact of citizens in some of your comments, uh, I want to let you discuss why are immigrants important to the U.S. economy, since that's a topic I believe is wildly uh, under-discussed, particularly when it comes to our aging baby boomer population and the need for new immigrants to come into this country and, you know, help pay the bills for Social Security and Medicare, et cetera, for really many of the folks who I suspect were in the audience at CPAC. Well, I, I mentioned the you know lifetime uh, benefits uh, that they pay in far more in, in taxes than they receive in benefits. Um, so you know that part of that is you know social security and um, and uh, uh, Medicare. You have more workers coming in. They work at higher rates than the U.S. born population, so they are ultimately contributing more in terms of their you know taxes to the to the U.S. government, 
And those, um, those benefits are really benefits for the U.S. born population who's receiving, uh, Social Security or Medicare in retirement. And if we didn't have it, we would start to look like Japan or parts of Europe where we have far more people on retirement who are not working than the working population. And that's not sustainable for your economy. You need a good worker to retired uh, uh, population uh, ratio in order to keep economic growth going. Otherwise, economic growth contracts and uh, because you do not have enough workers to support uh, your population. Now, all of this sounds like a common sense to me. It sounds like stuff that's independently verifiable. How were all of these comments received as as you saw it at the at the panel? Was Alice Olstein's uh, description over at TPM with, with folks heckling and challenging your data was 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 she largely accurate in her description of of what happened there? Uh, yes, uh, I think her report is um, pretty accurate. Uh, the only uh, piece that I take a um, you know, I think was she didn't see everything that happened that mm-hmm. happened after the panel. There were a minority of people who came up to me afterwards who said, you know, that they really, you know, they disagreed with me on policy, but they really appreciated that I, you know, didn't respond uh, to the hecklers uh, in kind and, you know, just presented uh, the facts mm-hmm. and stuck to the data. And I think, while I don't think that, you know, the vast majority of the audience was persuaded. I do think there were some people who thought, well, I don't want to associate myself with the people who are heckling. And I think, you know, in the long term, there you have to make marginal improvements at the edge. And that's why I went to CPAC. That's why I was willing. I knew this reaction was going to happen. Um, but I went anyway because, you know, those people who are you know, either on the side of of immigration or they could be on the side of immigration, need to see someone who's willing to present the facts mm-hmm. and, and stand up for that in any context, even one like CPAC. And so I think, um, you know, there were some people who uh, ultimately, you know, even if they weren't completely persuaded yet, they were more interested in listening to me as a result of, the fact that I was sticking to facts and, and focusing on the data. Yeah, yeah. Have you? And I know you've been attending and and, and speaking at CPAC for a number of years. Uh, have Have you received similar receptions in the past? Or I guess the question is, have, has it changed over the years uh, that you've been attending? Uh, actually, I would say no. I think the cutting edge on the nativist movement within the Republican Party is has been in that, uh, you know, the the coalition that goes to CPAC Mm -hmm. uh, for a while now. And, uh, I mean, obviously it hasn't always been that way because you had Ronald Reagan speaking there, and he was pretty pro-immigration, very pro-immigration, in Mm -hmm. fact. Um, And, you know, even before that, you had George W. Bush and and like-minded people. I wasn't attending back then. But, uh, you know, from what I understand, it has, it did change some point in the 2000s, probably around 2006, when the immigration reform debate really started to uh, pick up. Uh, And I know that, you know, my colleague here at Cato have spoke there uh, on many occasions uh, about immigration and uh, really, since since 2012, at least you've had really uh, negative reaction with the heckling and the you know people mm-hmm. trying to interrupt you as you present um, really uh, just sort of the basic 
facts about immigration. Is it fair to say then, because we, we are seeing a new uh, sort of public debate on all of this with these now, uh, you know, Trump calling for these limits to legal immigration as well. That's something that we yeah. haven't really heard in the past. So is it fair to say that that is something that has been present at CPAC, uh, that the that the CPAC debate has sort of bled into the public debate rather than the, the public debate bleeding over into CPAC? Is that is that fair? Uh, yeah, I, w- I would think that's a accurate description. And uh, you know, I, I thought the panel was interesting for a couple of reasons. In that, uh, you know, looking at what's driving some of this right wing uh, populism, grassroots, you know, activism on immigration, um, because I think there was a bit of a disconnect between the grassroots people in the audience and even. The policymakers like Congressman Burgess, mm-hmm. who he, you know, he listed jobs as being his top concern with immigration. That's why he wants to, you know, kick out the immigrants and and restrict immigration. Um, whereas the audience, the audience was sort of moderately, you know, appreciative of his remarks on that. But they were far more interested in things like crime and culture and. You know, these non-economic factors seem so much more important to the grassroots. And I don't think that's quite drifted all the way up to the policymaker level yet. I think it eventually will. And they'll stop emphasizing, you know, they're taking our jobs and start emphasizing you have to press two for, press one for English. Uh, You know, that was something that someone uh, in the audience was very upset about. you know, and so yeah. I think it's interesting to see how the dynamic is shifting and, you know, what's actually driving some of this stuff from the people in the audience. You also uh, um, uh, speak to the claim that uh, in in writing about the panel that uh, the Democrats interest in immigration is all about getting new voters. Um, you know, and I always wonder whenever I hear that conversation, you know, if Republicans weren't so hostile to immigrants, they yeah. might get many of these new voters. But but what was your response uh, to that argument that uh, came from? Actually, I guess it was brought up by the uh, the guy the guy who was heading the panel. Yeah. So you know, I, it was very weird, right? So I, I just brought up the fact that uh, you know, yes, uh, immigrants do tend to vote more for Democrats, uh, but it hasn't resulted in Democrats winning. Um, if you look, if you really look at the entire history of the Republican Party, the Republicans have only ever done well when the immigrant population in the United States was above 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the 1980s, 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, Democrats dominated and the immigrant population was real low. And, you know, more recently it's been above 10% and Republicans have started winning again, especially in Congress. Of course, there were some Republican presidents in there, but Democrats controlled Congress 92% of the time between 1935 and 1995. And since then, we've had Republicans in control for 70% of the time. And for whatever reason, when I pointed this out, uh, the, the audience and the panelists, uh, reacted in a confused and <laughs> negative way about the fact that their party is doing well, uh, even though there are so many immigrants here. So uh, it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's just one of those situations where, uh, you know, 
know, just the basic facts are provoking a reaction that I just don't understand. I, I, and I, well, I have a question about about that. Sure. But you, you, you told Alice sure. uh, over at uh, TPM that you believe in the power of facts and research to convince conservatives of the benefits of immigration. And you said that data is the thing that's going to win people over. David Beer, I'd love to believe you're right about that, but do you have any actual evidence, any actual facts and data to support that uh, th- that belief at this point? Well, uh, you know, obviously uh, this is not going to be the, the forum at CPAC with a, a, an incredibly biased audience. Um, is not probably going to be the place that uh, really, you know, Change the debate on immigration, but I do think there were some people who, you know, appreciated my focus on that, and, mm-hmm. and that is going to bring them over. The other thing that I would note is really we're having, uh, we're winning the argument uh, on immigration with the American public at large. Uh, we're losing the argument with a subset of the who, Republican who's, Party. I was going to say, who's we when you say we were winning? Well, really, you and I, and everyone who favors. Uh, legal immigration and legalizing, you know, long-term residents mm-hmm. of the United States. Um, we're winning that argument. The the public uh, supports our position mm-hmm. overwhelmingly. It's never been higher in terms of support for legalization, support for a pathway to citizenship for Dreamers, support for not restricting legal immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, we're winning all of those things. And if you dig down even deeper into just the general impressions that Americans have about immigration, 70% say it's a positive thing for the country to accept immigrants. Um, you know, you, you ask them about specific questions like, uh, do you think they're taking our jobs or do you think they're benefiting the economy? Uh, it's switched since the 1990s to be more Americans are now saying that they're good for the economy mm-hmm. and not bad for the economy. So mm-hmm. I think on a lot of different measures, we are seeing progress. And even while we're seeing, you know, uh, the faction of the Republican Party that is most hostile to immigrants has really taken control of the Republican Party and taken control of the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think we're making progress in many respects. I'll uh, I'll go with with your hopeful observation there and, and hope that you're right. I, I want to uh, leave a finally last quick question here. I I. I wanted to have you on to sort of lay out sure. a lot of that uh, data and the, the facts about which we should be basing this debate on, um, since the facts may be the only thing that folks like you and I, uh, David Beer, and that you and I, you, the Cato Institute, yeah. and I, that we may agree on. But most of the folks at CPAC in the audience and on the panel could not even agree on those. And, of course, immigration is not the only issue where a lack of agreement on basic, you know, independently verifiable facts seems to be a huge problem to keep us from figuring out many solutions to many of our problems. So from someone who's been at Cato a while, worked in uh, Congress uh, with with Republicans, going to CPAC, what do you, as a facts and data guy, what do you chalk up to uh, this this problem up to on the on sort of the right side of the political spectrum where they don't even seem to be able to accept independently verifiable facts at this point, David. So I really blame two things, right? So on the one hand, there's partisanship, you know, coming into play here, and they think they're lo- 
afraid of, that they're going to lose um, their control of the government and uh, if you have immigrants come in. And so inevitably, partisanship is going to play a big role in that. The other thing that's going on that I think is interesting is that the Democratic Party really has shifted on immigration in a pro-immigrant direction dramatically over the last decade. So in 2008, there really wasn't that much of a difference in many of the polling on you know, immigration matters. But now in 2018, you're seeing 90% of Democrats say that immigrants are a benefit to the country. They don't want to cut it. They want to legalize them. Um, that was only about 60% mm. in a decade ago. And so that has provoked somewhat of a reaction among a faction of the Republican Party. Uh, they see that and they get nervous that if they ever lose control of Congress, uh, something that they really hate is going to happen. And mm. so it's sort of their last stand <laughs> before the end. Uh, if Democrats do take over, I fully expect immigration reform will happen, and that will be the moment where they realize, you know, they lost the argument. And so it's really a, sort of the last stand and the, the fear that, you know, everything that they hate the most is going to happen uh, if uh, Democrats take control. Mm. Well, uh, I hope if Democrats uh, take control and all of this happens that, uh, David Beer, you will join me in the bunker. Uh, sure. I'll be glad to have you there. Uh, really appreciate you joining us today, David. Uh, and I hope you'll, uh, you'll, you'll come back in the future and on, on something we can uh, disagree with and, and bicker about, because that would be fun <laughs> that would as well. That would be great. All That'd right. Be great. Awesome. David, I appreciate that. David Beer, you can find his work at Cato.org. You can follow him on the Twitters at David underscore J underscore beer that's b-i-e-r thanks again david thank you all right quick break and i know you're desi you're chomping at the bit yeah, you yeah, you yeah i just in. i wanted yeah. just to say that so even if david beer the cato institute's immigration expert with all the facts if you know clearly these conservatives don't want to accept the facts any facts that challenge their preconceived notions if he can't reach them who can not me <laughs> I can tell you that. Yeah, I don't I don't know that anybody we, can reach him at this we point. We have a big problem. You think? All right, uh we'll take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about another one of our big problems. Uh where facts also don't seem to matter, guns. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Students and teachers hugged and cried on Wednesday as they returned under heavy police guard to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. For the first time since a teenager with an assault rifle killed 17 people, 
on Valentine's Day and thrust the huge Florida school into the center of a renewed national gun debate. The half day on Wednesday began with fourth period so that the nearly 3,300 students could be uh, could first be with the people that they were with during the shooting two weeks ago. Um, two weeks ago, uh, a lot of folks were talking about doing something about this, and uh, so far, nothing has been done. Donald Trump had some uh, had a had a meeting with uh, some uh, lawmakers today that I believe was televised. Televised. I didn't get to see it. Des, uh, you read about some of the yeah. Uh, USA weird Today comments. said yeah. that uh, said that President Trump said he favors taking guns away from people who might commit violence before going through legal due process in the court. That was what they characterized as one of many startling comments he made in a rambling White House meeting that was designed to hash out school safety legislation. And I don't know if he mentioned uh, the idea of arming teachers. I know that he's sort of been fading away from he, he had called for a, uh, an, a new age restriction when it came to uh, rifles, 21 year old. But after meeting with the NRA, he's backed off of that he seems to be less less strong on that but he did say that that on this uh this preventing guns from getting into the hands of the mentally ill he said as the usa today quotes i like taking guns away early take the guns first go through due process second (laughs) so and yet they called obama a gun grabber yeah and here you actually have donald trump saying take the guns away uh, but in any event, I wanted to. How's that uh, that that arming uh, teachers plan? How's that uh, coming? Well, pretty great so far. At least if this story out of Georgia today is any indication, a North Georgia teacher is now in custody after he fired at least one shot inside a classroom on Wednesday, according to police. The incident at Dalton High School, which is about 90, 90 miles west northwest of downtown Atlanta, sent panicked students running through hallways and alarmed parents who are already on edge in the wake of the mass shooting in Florida. Uh, at about 11.30 a.m., some students tried to get into Randall Davidson's classroom. He would not let them in, according to uh, Dalton police. They, alter, they alerted the principal... When the principal came to the door and used his key to try to open it, Davidson forcibly closed it on him. At that point, the principal heard a gunshot. Police have not said what type of gun was used, uh, only that it was a handgun. Officers evacuated a hallway, secured the area. During the evacuation, one female student was hurt um, with for an ankle injury. She was treated by emergency officials. After about 30 or 45 minutes, authorities were able to get Davidson to surrender. He is a 53-year-old social studies teacher. He's been at Dalton High since 2004. In 2012, he was recognized as the school's top teacher, according to the district. And, uh, well, uh, that ended uh, today's class uh, at Dalton High after uh, the gun was fired by a teacher. Thankfully, the classroom was empty at the time other than Davidson. But beyond that minor injury, uh, the the ankle injury that was uh, reportedly and a very scary evacuation for a lot of those students after they had heard gunfire. Uh, fortunately, nobody appears to have been hurt. But, hey, great reminder that arming uh, 10 or 20 percent of our teachers, as Donald Trump has called for, Clearly would be nothing but great all the way around. <laughs> uh, what could possibly possibly go wrong with that idea? 
Uh, speaking of going wrong, uh, MetLife, Delta, and more than a dozen other companies have decided to end benefits benefits deals that were offered to National Rifle Association members. Uh, but others, like FedEx, are staying put. Apparently, calls for boycotts have been cutting both ways against these companies, with gun rights and uh, gun safety supporters threatening to take their dollars elsewhere, depending on what the companies do. FedEx is the latest company to respond to pressure, saying that it will maintain its discount for NRA members. And uh, it supports the right to own firearms, but does not believe civilians should own assault rifles. Their response, says AP, shows the nuances that many companies are now dealing with in the current debate over guns. Over the weekend, Delta Airlines said it would end its discount rates for uh, for NRA members, but that it uh, also continues to support the Second Amendment. Georgia's Republican governor, as we noted on yesterday's show, Republican lieutenant governor, I should say, Casey Cagle, threatened to use his position to derail tax exemptions for jet fuel that would primarily benefit Delta Airlines, uh, the largest employer, I believe, in Georgia, certainly in Atlanta. Uh, He called the fact that Delta Airlines uh, would no longer be working with NRA an attack on conservatives. Such a drama queen. Ain't he? Ain't they? NRA uh, also pushed back, calling the departure of its corporate partners, quote, a shameful display of political and civic cowardice. It is a shameful display, apparently, to not give us special discounts for our members. That's cowardly. Well, uh, then uh, uh, they're really not going to like what Dick's Sporting Goods has uh, done to their credit today. They say they will immediately end sales of all assault-style rifles in their stores. They won't sell guns to anyone under 21 years old in any of their stores. Dick's chairman and CEO Edward Stack said uh, Wednesday that after the shooting uh, in Florida, the company, quote, felt it needed to do something. He said that Dix is prepared for any potential backlash, yet they won't change their policies on gun sales, period. He doesn't care if there is a backlash, which he says he expects. Um, But his company no longer wants to be a part of the narrative surrounding mass shootings. Good for him. He was on CNN this morning uh, and asked about this new uh, corporate position. When you look at those kids and their parents and the grief that everyone's going through, and we don't want to be a part of this story any longer. We actually sold the shooter a shotgun in uh, in November of last year. And we looked at that and found out that we did this. We had a pit in our stomach and said, we need to not, we don't want to be a part of this story and we need a, a responsibility to these kids. And, and we decided we are not going to sell these any longer. So it's, I, so it's true, the Parkland uh, murderer bought a weapon at Dick's, not one of the ones that was used in the shooting. Right. But did that matter to you when you found that out? What that said to us is we looked at this and we went back and we, We did everything by the book that we were supposed to do from a a legal standpoint. We followed everything we were supposed to do. And somehow we still, this kid was still able to buy a gun from us. Mm. And we said, we just, we we don't want to be a part of this story any longer. How do you balance your corporate responsibility as a citizen versus your corporate responsibility to your shareholders? At what price does this become the wrong move? Well, we, we think it's the right move and whatever happens, 
we think this is the right move. It's the right thing to do for these kids. It's the right thing to do for uh, what's going on. And we hope that it spurs a conversation and brings people along to have a serious conversation about what's happening in our schools and with gun violence and put a stop to it. I'm a gun owner myself. You know, I'm a, I, I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment. I'm a gun owner myself. We have to do something about this. This is tragic what's going on and we're taking a stand. So, you know what you're going to hear from uh, other people who are gun advocates. They're going to say, no, you're doing something, you're making it worse. You're stopping my ability to get the weapon that I need, that I have the right to have, so it's my decision, not yours, and I can't defend myself against these bad guys, and you're limiting the bullets, so they'll have these high-capacity magazines, and I won't. You're hurting me, you're not helping me. Well, you're going to hear that from some people. We've had such, um, we've had so many gun owners also say, you know what, this is the right thing to do, Mm -hmm. you know? We don't feel that we really need to have these types of guns on the market. We don't feel that these high-capacity magazines should be on the market. We actually think that when this happens and there's a shooting like this, it actually hurts what's going on with responsible uh, gun owners who are using them for target practice, shooting, you know, sporting clays and, uh, and, and hunting. So we've had a lot of people who are in that camp who have said, we're good with what you're doing. That was uh, Dick's Sporting Goods CEO, Edward Stack, on CNN on Wednesday. Good for him. Yeah. Good for uh, corporate responsibility. Nice to see for a change. Yeah, and I, th- I like the way he said that. We don't want to be part of this story anymore. Indeed. Uh, I don't want to be part of this show anymore because it's uh, time for us to end. So my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, David Beer of the Cato Institute, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am simply the Bradblog, and as always, my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. That's how we stay on your public airwaves, with your help at bradblog.com slash donate. Uh, Please stop by and consider supporting the work that we do every day over your public airwaves. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 